Get a Life in Christ with your host, Father Benedict Rochelle. And now, here's Father Rochelle. Hello, I'm Father Benedict Rochelle of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal from the South Bronx in New York. And today we have the final segment of a five-part series I've done on helping the church in these difficult times. And we've talked about how a person can assist the church in its growth and improvement, how a person may even object to something in the church and do this in a responsible and effective way, a way that is charitable and polite. We've talked about how to write a letter, how to start a committee, how to do many things that may bring into focus an opportunity for church leaders to improve things. We've also talking about, spoken about some of the big problems, theological, cultural, historical, which trouble the church and other religious denominations at the present time. And we can't review all of these now, but they were they and are serious problems ranging from historical and psychological changes like the difference changes in the role of women uh, changes in public acceptance of morality and concepts of responsibility and commitment we've talked about theological errors which have made it up to the surface again Crypto-Arianism, which is a denial of the divinity of Christ. Neo-Pelagianism, which is a denial of the order of grace and salvation. And Rationalism, which is a denial of the mysterious and transcendent elements in faith and religion. Today, I want to talk about the final and most important thing that you can do to help the church at this time. And it doesn't make any difference whether you're old or young, educated or relatively uneducated, whether you write letters or not. But this is the most important thing that you can do. And that is to be a true follower of Christ at this time. Unto thyself be true. And if you present yourself before the world as a member of the church, then be a member of the church in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are doing this in environments that are hostile to religion and faith. Be patient, but be true. Some of you are just returning to a vibrant life of faith. Don't let it slip away. Some people who turned on their TV set tonight were kind of uninterested in this, but sort of stopped when they saw this strange medieval figure and wondered if it was a modern rendition of Robin Hood. It is not. But you might stand, sit there and listen for a moment to what I have to say. And what I'm going to read, again, is from the great scholar, great genius of his day, Cardinal Newman, John Henry Newman, writing about religion. These are tough words. If you just turned this program on and you're staying overnight in somebody's house and didn't know what you were looking at, it might be wise to turn the station. You may not want to hear these words. The aim of most men, esteemed as conscientious and religious, or at least what are called honorable 
upright men is to all appearances not how to please God, but how to please themselves without displeasing God too much. They make this world the first object of their minds, and they use religion as a corrective, a restraint against too much attachment to the world. They think that religion is a sort of negative thing, a sort of moderate love of the world, a moderate luxury, a moderate avarice, a moderate ambition, a moderate selfishness or lust. You see this in many ways. You see it in the course of business, of public life. You see it in literature and in all matters where people have objects to pursue. In fact, Newman says, you see it in religious activities, of which it all too commonly happens that the chief aim is to attain, by any means, a certain definite end, which may be religious, but it is one of man's own choosing. It is not done to please God, but to please ourselves. Those are tough words. And they could be addressed to the members of any religious denomination. Because God is absolute, infinite, and transcendent. As it says in the Old Testament, His words are above all words like the heavens are above the earth. Because God is absolute, then people are always going to be in some kind of conflict with God. Sometimes religious people unwisely think that they have dispelled all conflict with God, that their hearts are purely and perfectly set on the will of God. They're saved. They're the, on the inside track. They no longer need to be repentant. They are safe. It seems to me that this is a fool's position utterly at odds with the parables and with the letters of St. Paul and St. John in the New Testament and the letter of St. James. These letters, along with the parables, are constantly calling people to reform, to repentance, to daily personal repentance. You'll never do a thing for the church unless you are repentant. I heard of a man recently who was a great defender of religion, of Christianity. He's constantly attacking what he considers dangerous liberal trends and tendencies in religion and in the church. But he's not a believer. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't pray. We'd be better off without his assistance because that assistance will be given in such a way that it will ring unmoving and untrue to those who hear it. In the first letter of John, we read, The way we may be sure that we know him is to keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his commandments, the love of God is truly perfected in him. And this is the way we may know that we are in union with him.
whoever acclaim, claims to abide in him, ought to live as he lived. These words from the second chapter of the first letter of John are very powerful words. You cannot be a witness to the church, to the truth of Christianity, unless you are good to the poor, unless you are patient, unless you show a great concern for those who hunger and thirst after justice. You cannot do it. It will be a false Christianity. And there are terrifying words about this kind of Christianity in the New Testament where our Lord says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. How could this be? Because people have not walked in the steps of Christ. They have not done what John calls upon us to do, to live as he lived. It's necessary to be a person of true faith. Once a person has bowed their neck to the mystery of God, their faith will be serene. It will not be argumentative, it will not be fighting, it will not be trying to prove itself all the time. They will know. And they will go gently on believing, even in atmospheres where nobody else believes. You may live in a family made up of people who don't believe now. Go patiently, devoutly, lovingly about your way and pray for them. A person who really is reforming their life will have great hope and trust in God. They'll have not only courage about life and trust the things in this life will work out, which is not the same as the theological virtue of faith. That's really the moral virtue of courage. But hope, the theological virtue of hope, is founded in the belief that Christ will save us. Hope is about eternal life. People can be in absolutely hopeless circumstances, but they will have hope in God. There's a beautiful old Protestant hymn, Abide With Me, and it's sung in the voice of a person who's dying. And there's a beautiful phrase in it, Hope of the Hopeless. Abide with me. If all people who claim to be devoutly loyal to God showed an atmosphere of hope about themselves, it would not be long before many others would believe. And finally, we need to love. To love God. To be loyal to God. To be reverent to God. To be interested in the things of God. To be enthusiastic about the things of God. You know, a person who loves God is not a minimalist. Says, well, I heard about this, but I'm not so sure it's so true. You know, and I don't want to get involved. And I mean, I sort of like my own very comfortable little way of Christianity. I don't think that's very good. I think if we hear that something is the cause of God or a work of God, we should go see this great thing. Find out about it. Maybe it's not true. Maybe we'll have to discard it later on. Maybe it wasn't quite the thing. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it was a fraud. But we were interested enough to be stir ourselves to find out, well, did it come from God? My goodness. Suppose you were there in Bethlehem on that winter's night so long ago. And somebody said, did you hear this? There's a baby born and there's angels around. 
And my goodness gracious, it's marvelous. Well, I don't really think so. I mean, I think if the Messiah is going to be born, he'd be born in the palace of the high priest or, you know, something. I mean, really, I mean, Bethlehem, please, you know. Come on! Do we have an enthusiasm for God? The world is becoming very enthusiastic about paganism. You can get some rock rope or some peculiar collection of people whose values are zilch, and they can get 50 or 60,000 people out to a concert paying a whole lot of money and picking up doodads. I feel sorry for them. Because what will it mean next year? What will it mean 10 years from now? What will it mean in that absolutely unavoidable moment when they face death? It's a wise question for the believer to honestly ask himself or herself every day, what am I doing that relates to my death? When you try to consider what you can do to change, believe me, there are so many things that you don't know where to start. And I always tell people, take the next good step. Take whatever is there. What's the top thing? That's what's supposed to be done. And so many times, the top thing, the thing that is supposed to be done, the thing that we are supposed to change, is the last thing in the world that we want to change. We say, oh, that. Well, does God really want that? He probably does. If it's on your mind, it's probably what needs to be done. Don't run away from the call of God. If you're old or young, you've had many problems in life, if you're struggling with psychological problems or physical problems, if you're depressed, if your family doesn't get along with you, if you don't get along with them, if nobody's listening to you, go to God. Take the next good step. It's so beautiful, the next good step. We know what to do next. We may not know what to do tomorrow, but we know what to do today. And so many times, what we are supposed to do is something good for something, someone else. In doing good, St. Paul says, let us not grow tired. Let us not grow tired. We live in a very selfish, self-centered, and somewhat dishonest world. Speak up for good. Speak up for life. Speak up for peace. Speak up for justice. But do it in a way, St. Paul says in Colossians, do it in a way that your speech can be heard, that they will not be offended. He says use a little bit of humor, and I think it's always a good idea. And finally, if you're as distressed and concerned about the world as I am, and as many people who listen to EWTN are, of whatever religious denomination, and I get letters from people of all religious denominations, Christian and non-Christian, listening to these programs. Pray. Prayer is a marvelous privilege. Do you realize any time you want, you can speak to the creator of the world. You can't call up the president. It'd be difficult to call up the pope. You might not even be able to get in touch with the bishop or the pastor. But you can get in touch with God. He's got a switchboard that's always open. Pray. 
In Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 18, St. Paul says, With all prayer and supplication, pray at every opportunity in the Spirit. And to that end, be watchful with all perseverance and supplication for all the holy ones, and also for me, that speech may be given to me to open my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains, so that I may have the courage to speak as I must. And if you watch these programs, pray for me along with St. Paul. God chooses the poor things of this world, the things that are weak, the things that are nothing. He chooses fools. He really does. He chooses fools. And you have to pray for the fools that are called upon to preach. That we ourselves will follow what we preach to others. That we will do what we have told others to do. The reform of the church, the reform of the world that we are in right now, is such a gigantic thing that it really seems impossible. It really does seem impossible. And there's all sorts of crepe hangers around, including many Christians, who enjoy all kinds of prophecies that the whole works is going to end in a few years. Some people are all in a tizzy about the year 2000. Now, first of all, the bad news is that the year 2000 really isn't the year 2000. The calendar is off, and the year 2000 is probably just the year 196. 1,996 A.D. So if you really want to get to 2,000, it may not be till 2,004. That's for openness. Secondly, when the world was 1,000 years old, all sorts of people got hysterical and decided that the world was about to end at 1,000. And the Pope told them they were all crazy. So they denounced the Pope. They called him nasty names. Uh, they said all sorts of terrible things about the Pope. And, um, in fact, he was a rather kindly Pope. And uh, one, of the, one of the sad things, when you read at that time, one of the accusations these prejudiced people made against the Pope was that he was a friend of the Jews who lived in Rome. So they, they held that against him. And the Pope said, it's all nonsense. So they gathered in the churches on Christmas Eve, and they thought the world would end in the middle of Midnight Mass. Well, it didn't. So they gathered on New Year's Eve. And it didn't. So they kept hoping and waiting. And here we are, a thousand years later, and things are getting worse. Don't waste your time with predictions of the apocalypse. Your apocalypse is coming, and mine is coming. And mine may not be very far off. My cardiologist is doing the best he can to stave it off. The apocalypse is when you go into eternity. And I can't say that I find the prospect very unappealing. And if I could miss the big one, I'd just assume because it's going to be kind of noisy. Now, what you should do is get a life. Do something alive for the improvement of the church and for the improvement of the world in which we live. I'll tell you who I feel sorry for. I feel very sorry for the children of our time. 
They grow up in a world which becomes more and more loveless. They grow up in a world where they know that they could have been killed in the womb. They grow up in a world where they know that if they had been inconvenient, they could have been dispatched. But a different decision was made. I've known children whose mothers said to them in moments of anger, Oh, I should have had an abortion. What does that do? What does it do that we could know that those whom we love could have killed us? We live in a world where in a few years people may have the right to take their own life. And you get all the hardship cases in, in the press, you know, the lady who got bit by the uh, polar bear that escaped from the zoo and she has no arms and no legs and no shoulder or anything else, so she wants to die. They give you the hardship case, you see. The people who commit suicide most frequently in our country are teenagers. Those in, in favor of euthanasia might stop to think that just as we have given in this country a legal right to a child to have an abortion, we can be giving a legal right to a child to kill himself. And his parents will have nothing to say. We have religion that is very, very confused. That keeps its mouth shut about bad things. We have very, very confused situations in some theological areas. One of the most prestigious Protestant seminaries in the United States has a president who is not a Christian. He's explicitly not a Christian. I don't know what he's doing at the head of the seminary. Seems to me that seminaries are supposed to be places where you teach people how to preach the gospel. That's what I thought it was about. Now, each denomination has its own problems at home. And these lectures have been given primarily to Catholics how to work on things to improve our church. But let me say that all the religious denominations in this country could use reform. And probably those that are in the greatest danger are those who think they don't need it. That's a very dangerous position to be in. Reform is something that goes on all the time. Chesterton once said that it was the problem of the Protestants that they had stopped protesting. Well, that could be true. But there's also the problem of a lot of the Catholics that they've stopped being Catholic. That they've stopped... Catholic means universal. It means taking in all people into all of the teachings of the church. All of them, without exception. I've had Orthodox priests tell me that some of the problems with some of the Orthodox is that they're not Orthodox. I had a good friend of mine who was a rabbi, went to be interviewed for a very prestigious position in one of the American Jewish denominations, and he came back and he said, I thought they were interviewing me to be a cheerleader on the Dallas Cowboys. They didn't want to know what my theological position was at all. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same soup. And we all need to turn to God in humility in prayerfulness, 
in deadly honesty and charity. It breaks my heart to see the different denominations in the United States throwing rocks at each other. There are some fundamentalist denominations. You'd think the only enemy they had in the whole world was the Roman Catholic Church. They live in the middle of Babylon, and they're throwing rocks at people who are trying to pray to God. The very church that gave them the New Testament, that gave them the Bible, that gave them the knowledge of baptism, and they're shooting at us. For heaven's sakes, let's stand together. Let's stand together against forces that are unleashed, against the rule of God and the kingdom of Christ in the world. St. Paul said to the Christians of his time that our struggle is not with principalities and powers. It is with principalities and powers, not with flesh and blood with the world rulers of darkness. Yes, there is something terribly sinister in public life at the present time. Satan is called the father of lies, and there are immense lies told in the public forum. There are people on all sides who claim to be Christian, who do things utterly and stand for things utterly contrary to Christianity. You and I have to be honest. Christ says, He that will confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father in heaven. And with some of the causes that go on in this country, you could put it another way and say, She that will confess me before women, I will confess her before my Father in heaven. Sometimes people are set against one another, father against son, mother against daughter. Christ prophesies this in his life. But we need to go on with sincerity, with fervor, with truth, with charity, with compassion, with a sense of humor, with a bit of coraggio, with faith, hope, and love. We are armed with these things. And do not fear. We will not be defeated. Christ has never been defeated. He always eventually wins. God is not mocked. His Son is not destroyed. Let us go forward. But remember that the battle must begin in your heart and mind. The world will never be converted unless it happens once, one at a time, in your heart and in my heart. Let's pray for each other. Amen. This has been the program Get a Life in Christ with your host, Father Benedict Rochelle.